As we transition to God's word this morning, would you just pray with me? Father, thank you for these two saints and the impact they have had on our lives. And we thank you that they are with you now, that their sickness and suffering are completely in the past tense. We rejoice that you have personally wiped away their tears and welcomed them with open arms. We rejoice for them and we ask that you would comfort us who remain. Those who love them and miss them and long for the day when there will be no more goodbyes, no more separations, when our tears too will be wiped away. We look forward to that day. We're grateful that because of you, what you have done in Christ, our hope extends far beyond the grave. So let us not mourn as those who have no hope. We're grateful for your care for these dear saints and pray that we would see your same care. In your great name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 John chapter 4 is where we'll be picking up this morning. Though we... Got to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel last week. I believe Matt is still planning one more wrap-up, um, concluding message there when he returns next week. Begin reading with me, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, does not love, does not know God. Because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world. So that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. As we read through these verses, it's not hard to see what John, the author, wants us to do. He wants us to love one another. That is the clear imperative, the clear statement of what we must do from this passage. Actually, we're implored, we're encouraged, and even commanded to do so. The, the theme, the word love, occurs nearly 30 times in these 15 verses. Uh, love and the idea of love isn't exactly plain hard to get in this passage. The opening phrase of verse 7 exhorts us, let us love one another. And the closing statement of verse 21 says, this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We can't read this passage and come to any other conclusion, but what John is calling us to is to love one another. Loving one another is the answer to the what question. What action, what application are we to take away from 1 John 4, 7-21? through 21? So, so why are there 15 verses here when he said that in the first verse? Why so many words to get that single point across? Is John just trying to give preachers more to talk about? Give more ammunition? What else is he seeking to accomplish? Well, John is also answering the question, not just of what are we to do, but why? Why are we to love one another? And he answers this question really in two ways. The first is because loving one another shows that we're born of God. It shows that we know God. It shows that we love God. There's an assurance that comes for us as believers, as we love one another. It's part of God's design and why He has us to love one another so that our own faith can be built. And we also see here that John takes much of this passage to let us know that our love for one another isn't something we're just to muster up on our own. But it's God's great love for us that is meant to compel us to love one another. Well, let's look at the first why that John presents here. We love because loving one another shows that we are born of God, that we know God and love God. Remember, as we've looked throughout the book of First John, one of his primary purposes in writing this letter, there are really two. The first is that he would protect against false teachers. To this young and growing church, he wanted to offer care and protection and letting them know there were wolves in sheep's clothing around that threatened their well-being. And so he wanted to care for them by telling them how to be on guard and to watch out. And that's what we talked about last time we were in First John a couple of weeks ago in the first part of this chapter. The other thing that he looks to do is to give assurance to believers. As they're facing threats from without, he's also aware that even their own hearts are not always the support and strength that they need to be. Sometimes it's our own doubt 
not just threats from outside that can cause us to waver and wonder. And so he wanted to bring a young church understanding of how they could have assurance that they truly were relating with God, that they truly were God's people. He wanted to tenderly care for them. And that's what we see John providing here in these verses is more assurance to connect their love for God with their life in God, with the fact that it reveals that they indeed do know God and are loving God. Loving God, loving one another, reveals that we are born of God and have life in Him. This is the first thing he says right out of the gate. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And we don't want to throw that phrase away. Every, everything that John builds in these verses flows from that statement, from that reality, that love is from God. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has therefore been born of God and knows God. We read in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides, He lives, He dwells in us, and His love is perfected in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide, that we live in Him, And He in us, because He's given us His Spirit. Verse 16, God is love, and whoever abides in love, whoever lives in love, lives in God. And God lives in Him. Again and again, John wants to point out that their ability to love one another doesn't come just from themselves. Their ability to love one another comes from God where all love comes from. And so their ability to love is because they have been born of God. They find their life in God and as they live in God, love is part of the fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit dwelling within us, compelling us to action. If you are born into His family, you'll display His traits. Love is from God and flows from life in God. So if we have been born of God and given His Spirit, we will love. When we love one another, it is evidence of our life in God. And, And John John is seeking to encourage these believers with this reality. He isn't selling the need to love one another as a duty, a chore that they must accomplish, but as an affirmation of whose they are. This is meant to be a blessing to us as we live in Him and love one another It will be revealed to us. It will be an encouragement to our souls that we belong to God. And so he's seeking to let them know that even this action of loving is to be a blessing to them, not not some harsh obligation or impossible measure that they're to live up to. It also reveals loving one another reveals that we know God. Life in God and knowing God and loving God are inseparably intertwined both in our experience and in John's descriptions. And so we see in verse 7 again, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And in verse 8 he points out anyone who does not love, oh, they do not know God because God is love. John is moving us through a sort of progression from being given life in God to, to knowing God, ultimately to loving God, all being revealed in our love for one another. 
Again, we see that loving one another reveals not just that we've been born of God or know Him, but that we love God. Verse 20, John writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, this is meant to be a pointer to the work of God in us that we would love one another and see that our love for God is genuine as we love one another. You see, from Scripture's perspective, there is little distinction or separation between loving God and loving His people. Jesus stated this twin commands, summing up the law and the prophets that we are to love God and we're to love our neighbor or to love those around us. Yet in places like this, one is almost left to wonder if it would be much of a stretch of his teaching to, to say that we love God by loving our neighbor. There's not much separation in the reality that as we seek to love God, we can't escape the need, the call to love our neighbor to love one another so john makes it clear that we can't say that we love god and then fail to love our neighbor without gaining the label of a liar and i don't think john is just calling foul on a claim that can't be proved a claim to love the invisible god when there is at the same time a failure to love the brother who needs our care I think it's also the fact that Christ so identifies with His people that He calls us His body. I think it's the reality that was revealed in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus confronts Saul, the persecutor of the church, on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identified with what Saul was doing to his people that he claimed it was a persecution of him. So John has no trouble stating that if we don't love our brother, well, we aren't loving God either. Loving God means we must love our brother. That's a high call, but there's also a wonderful fruit that comes from seeing as we love this reality that indeed we are God's. We are having life in Him. It is from Him that our love flows. And so we recognize that it's Him that we know and that we are loving even as we seek to walk out love for one another. And loving one another has other fruit as well as as Paul or as John takes this even further where failing to love our brother reveals our love for God is a lie. Loving one another reveals that we are abiding in him and he is abiding in us and his love he says is being perfected. In us. In verse 12, he writes, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 16, he says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence. For the day of judgment, because as he is also, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. As, as we, if we follow John's argument from verse 12 on through 18, he's actually saying that loving one another is the path of casting out fear and gaining confidence for the day of judgment. It's not just something that we have no ability to know where we stand, but but John is saying we can know whether we're relating rightly with God, whether our love is truly for Him, whether we truly know Him, whether we have indeed been born of Him by our love for one another. And so as we love one another... It reveals our life in God and our assurance grows. And as we realize that God's great love for us is overflowing through us to those around us, it in turn encourages us in the reality of how amazing His love is, which has removed the penalty of our sin. The reality that His love is that deed in work at work within us, reminds us of the amazing love that He indeed has for us. The lengths to which He went to make us His own. And it reminds us of the security that we have in Him, that He has indeed removed the penalty of our sin, of our deaths. We no longer have a reason to fear His judgment, but instead can have confidence as the day approaches. Which brings me to a concern as we wade through this passage thick with appeals to love and the weightiness of the importance of our love for one another. The question, do we really know what love is? No foreigner reference is intended. Sorry. After all, if our assurance is hanging in the balance, I don't want to just assume we're all working with the same definition. Especially when, as we look around at our culture, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of solid answers the nature of love and what it is. When it, when it seems the best answer we get on how to find true love is to find the right person. Telling us love is something that you fall into. And the best advice they have on identifying love is you'll know. These ideas particularly directed at romantic love, but I'm not sure that contemporary culture has much stronger definitions or ideas at defining what non-romantic love, the basics of love really are. Here are a few definitions I found for love. It's the most spectacular, indescribable, deep, euphoric feeling for someone. Love, a profoundly tender Passionate affection for another person. Love, a feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection. Love, a a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. Love, an intense feeling or deep affection. Most mention affection or feeling in some way. Many of them use the word deep for some reason. Or for the more cynical, love, nature's way of tricking people into reproducing. These are our ideas of what love is. And I think there are certain important elements of love that they contain. Affection, attachment. But they are ultimately shallow definitions when placed in the context of Christ's commands to love God. And to love our neighbor. Our popular culture often confuses love, I think, with infatuation. That intense feeling of passion or being drawn towards another person. And and it thinks that somehow 
that feeling is supposed to last forever. And then not too far into happily ever after, when feelings begin to fade or wear off a bit, we think that love has passed us by or wonder how we missed finding our one true, true love. Ended up instead with this imposter. Is it this feeling that Paul exhorts husbands to when he tells them to love their wives as Christ loves the church? Is he calling us to a perpetual experience of desire and euphoria? I mean, hey, that sounds wonderful, but can that be commanded? Is that the goal? Is that how we reflect Christ? Before I answer that question, I want to move on to John's second answer to the why love one another question. Again, because God's great love for us compels us to love each other. Again, it's very clear that the action called for in these verses for us to love one another, but even more prominent in volume and repetition is the motivating presence of God's love for us. I mentioned it was just under 30 times that the word love was used in this passage. Well, references to God were 34 even more times than the references to love. In addition to stating that love is from God and twice highlighting that God is love, the gospel, that example of God's love for us is highlighted multiple times as our model and motivation for love throughout this passage. In verse 9 we see in this In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was made known that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And If you're not familiar with the word propitiation, it's not a common word, but it carries a big idea. It speaks to the fact that God cannot simply overlook sin and remain righteous or just. So, for example, in 1 Samuel, as we see David's sin and God seeming to not bring him to account, God could be accused of tolerating sin, playing favorites, that sin doesn't really matter to God, that He's not indeed a righteous judge, that He is not just in all of His judgments. He's open to charges because He hasn't dealt with every sin. Every sin must be dealt with, which is what the Son came to do, which is what this verse is saying. He covered our sin so that God's gracious kindness to us who deserved His wrath could indeed be seen as just. It's a way of saying that God Himself is justified by Christ's Actions. What it does is it proves God's righteousness by showing that the sins He overlooked for a time did not remain undealt with. Because, you see, to show kindness to sinners who deserve His wrath, it opens Him up to accusations against His character. And so what John is saying here is that He so loved us that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take care of, to deal with sin so that the favor that He shows us isn't pretend. He is still righteous. 
He is still just. Every sin has been dealt with. It just wasn't required of a payment by us. Another was sent in our place so that we would be able to enjoy the favor, the wonderful gift of God, that it would not be a lie, but it would be genuine. And so... That is what it talks about when He sent His Son to be our propitiation. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, if that's the extent to which He loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Verse 19, we love, why? Because He first loved us. His love is our model. His love is our motive. We love because He first loved us. And since God loved us in this way, in sending His Son, in in taking our sin away, by covering our sin and sacrificing Himself in order to save us, brothers and sisters, He says, we ought to love one another. He is to be our example. He is also to be our motivation. Now, I want to insert here a couple comments about the statement that's mentioned twice in this passage that God is love. Which again should be another clue perhaps that our definitions of love are lacking when it only involves feeling. God is a feeling of love. It is not an adequate definition. One of the underappreciated elements of the doctrine of the Trinity is how it allows exclusive claims to this central idea of the nature of love being essential to God's character. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit And forever they have been relating and honoring one another and loving each other for eternity. One God comprised of three persons. Three persons who each love the other two. Other solitary gods like Islam and Judaism and if you dig down Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, they can't make the same claims of this essential nature of love to the nature of God because their gods haven't always had someone to love. They, their love has not always been able to be a part of who they are. There was a time in their understanding when He existed without anyone else and therefore had no one to love. And indeed their understandings of the fundamental nature of love and their motivation to love are very different from what we have in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as they relate together. Our God did not require someone else so that He could be loving. Our God did not require someone else so that He could be loved. God has forever been a lover and has forever been beloved. His creation of us was not to fulfill something within Himself, but to expand that circle of love and et- that eternally existed and to be able to share it with us, His creatures. His love for us, therefore, is an overflow of the love that He has always had within the Trinity. No other God can claim such things. In this context, it's no mystery that John claims love is from God. It has always been part of His nature and character. He is the source and originator of all love. 
Love has always existed in Him and our experiences of and expressions of love are partaking of His eternal divine love. What does it mean that that He is love? Well, it doesn't mean that love is His only attribute. Something that those who like to justify their sin with statements of Him being love clearly mistake. Scripture lists plenty of other attributes as well, including the anthem sung by the seraphim, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yes, He is love, but He is also holy. He is also just, and He will not be mocked by those that seek to take advantage of one attribute while denying the whole of who He has revealed Himself to be. God is love means that He has an eternally outward focus. Each person of the Godhead is forever pursuing the blessing of the other members of the Trinity and since creation has been actively pursuing the blessing and betterment of His creatures. Which brings us back to our what is love question. Our strong feelings or affections, the sum of what is required of us. Will we be identified as Christ's disciples by our feelings for one another? You see, something is missing from our definition, and this is no mere academic pondering. The substance of Christian discipleship, loving God and loving our neighbor, is bound up in the answer So what do we see in Christ's model of love? Verse 9 again, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, made known to us that God sent His only Son into the world. God so loved the world that He gave. His only Son. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. God's love is not marked primarily by feelings, but action. I'm not saying that He is without affection or feeling. I'm saying that His love is His affection in action. The good news is not that God felt a certain way about you. We'd be in a heap of trouble if He only had warm, affectionate feelings for us and never took action. His love needed to be made manifest. It needed to be made known. It needed to be revealed. And He did this by sending Jesus. Action benefiting the Beloved is an essential part of the biblical understanding of love. It's a marriage of affection and action. Neither is adequate, isolated from the other. Consider the Son's love for us in its highest expression. Him giving Himself on Calvary. It never would have occurred if it was hinging on feelings alone. As He agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane with great anguish of His soul, three times He asked the Father for another way. Asking for this cup to pass from Him That's what his emotions were that evening. That's what he was feeling as father. If there's any other way. That pivotal evening was not fueled by warm, fuzzy feelings for you and me, but a commitment to act. To act not according to his own preference or comfort 
or desire, but for the good of those he was seeking to love, even to his own pain and death. His decision to act in love carried him beyond his feelings of love that evening. Not because he didn't love us, but because his love wasn't confined to feeling alone. And because he acted, we will forever celebrate and praise his steadfast love. But let's not make the opposite mistake either. Actions alone don't equate love either. 1 Corinthians 13 makes clear that we can give away all we have or deliver our bodies to be burned, yet have not love. Action alone, even self-sacrificing action, is not automatically love. Affection is still a necessary component. Our anniversary was Tuesday. So say I picked up a big bouquet of flowers. I didn't. Let's just say that for this illustration. And I brought them home and delivered them to Colleen. And when she says thanks, tells me how beautiful they are, I inform her that really no thanks are needed. I'm doing this because we're married, and therefore I'm contractually obligated to bring flowers once in a while. I haven't been in any big fights lately, so I'm kind of behind in my schedule for bringing flowers. And so this really... Well, just fulfilling my duty to bring you flowers. That's an action. I think she'll be feeling the love. Cue that fight that I said it's been a while since we've had. Of course, I'd be an idiot to say anything remotely related to that. But if we're honest... That might not be that far from where our hearts get sometimes. More attuned to obligation than affection. Which is why we must not neglect. Friends, we must not neglect the God component of love. Otherwise, obligations, real or perceived, duties, They become fuel for resentment instead of fuel for passion and love. Affection and action. Affection in action. That's the mark of God's love for us. And it is what we are to reflect in our love for one another. The good news is that God has designed us in such a way that we can start if we need help where we are at. If you feel love, well, ask God. Because love is from God. Ask Him to help you add actions that will benefit and will bless. Remember that love can't be received if it isn't seen or heard. Ask for love, ask for words that encourage and build up. Ways to practically serve. Ways to prioritize their interests. And if you don't know what some of those ways are, act by asking them. Work to put your affections in action. And can I just say, as it pertains to how you relate with one another, how you relate as a body, it's a joy to see affection in action week after week as you serve one another as you lay down your lives for the good of those around you whether it's during the week and the meals that are cooked and the visits that are made whether it's through things that we do together here those that lead and host care groups sound and music teams grace kids and the multitude of ways that you serve one another every week. Thanks for those that are coming tonight, setting up in 95 degree weather. 
Thanks for putting your affection, your love in action. Thanks for Stephen and and spending the afternoon cooking for us so that we can enjoy that this evening. Thanks for those that are going to help him. Thanks for how you do display affection in action ongoingly. If your affections for a particular individual or the missing component, realize that it's also possible for our affections to be directed by our actions. You see, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, isn't just true for money. What we invest in with our time and our energy and our prayers can shape the attitudes of our hearts. When Jesus told His disciples, love your enemies... Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He wasn't just telling us to change our emotions. But how? How to change them? By actions of love. Not retaliations to sin. And see if our hearts won't follow. If you have someone who you're struggling with, or, or just that you're neutral towards. You're not fulfilling the call to love your brother. Start by praying for them. Pray that God would strengthen and encourage them. Pray for them according to what is eternally true and important. That they would know the greatness of God's love. They would experience the sweetness of his nearness. That they would grow in their knowledge of the incomprehensible God. Seek to serve them practically in some way. Relate to them not according to any offense that you may have experienced, but in the same way God relates to you. See if you can do those things and not have your heart moved toward them. Obviously, if there is lingering offense or bitterness, that needs to be dealt with. But many times, simple acts of relating and serving and praying can open the doors to transforming relationships. This is the practical means by which love covers a multitude of sins. Yes, affections can compel us into action, but our actions also have the ability to direct our affections again the clear and undisputed call of this passage is to love one another and as we do so we gain assurance of our own relationship with God and reflect the God that loves us so how specifically is he calling you to grow in love this week is there a particular relationship he is highlighting as you listen a child a sibling your spouse, a parent, someone in your group, someone you've been avoiding, a neighbor? How is God calling you to reflect Him and His love in that relationship? Is there some way He is asking you to pursue them? What does affection in action look like in that relationship? Do you need to grow in expressing love, giving thanks and encouragement, and speaking affection Are there particular actions or activities that will best reflect not seeking your own interests, but their interests? How are you called to lay your life down for them? Is this a relationship that you need to direct your affections so your love will grow? So your love can be patient and kind? How would your Heavenly Father have you pray for that person? Pray for the ability for yourself to go beyond yourself and your current affections and to love your brother? How would Christ have you love them practically so that your heart might follow? I just want to hit the pause button right there. Because when we're called to do, we can be tempted to be overwhelmed the high calling that is before us in loving those around us. 
we need to remember we have this command because we are loved. We need to remember love comes from God. God, the source of all love, has set His affection upon you. Not to be your secret admirer from afar, but He put His affections in action and gave His only Son so that you might be rescued from your sin and shame and the punishment those sins deserved and instead be brought into loving relationship with Him forever. The Son willingly chose to lay down His own life for you. The Holy Spirit has patiently revealed these truths to you. Each member of the Trinity has actively loved you as an overflow of His eternal love. Your love for your brother isn't something you are to muster up from somewhere in the bottom of your heart. God wants your heart to be full with an awareness of His love, of His care for you the actions that He has taken on your behalf so that that love can overflow to those around you. Don't try to love in your own power. Love is from God. Love is a fruit of God's Spirit given to you that might overflow in your actions and in your words to those around you. May God help us all to love one another, to gain assurance as we love one another, and to reflect Him as we love one another. For His great name's sake, for our benefit. Let's ask Him that He would help us all. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to You because love is from You. Lord, I ask that You would mark our body, our congregation, by love in action. Lord, would You fill us with the wonder of Your great love for us? Would You help our love to be modeled after and motivated by Your self-sacrificing love. Always looking to the interests of others. Lord, help us to know the joy of abiding in You.